0: If you're familiar with the church uh, prayer meeting, you may have recognized the second hymn today. Hymn 29, The Lord Has Heard and Answered Prayer. And so the word that we're going to hear today is the proper response to answered prayer. You see, people ask us for favors, whether it be friends, children, neighbors, or coworkers, And some favors asked of us are bigger favors than others. They may require more personal sacrifice, while other favors are barely an inconvenience, like being asked to pass the salt at the dinner table. But whether the request is great or small, we naturally expect a grateful response from the one to whom we have granted the favor requested. In fact, we are at least slightly annoyed or sometimes even offended, rightly or wrongly, when we do not receive the expected thankful response. But this all should cause us to examine how we are responding to the grace God regularly shows us through answered prayer. How are we responding to God's granting us our requested favors? From our passage this morning in Mark 1, 29 through 34, we not only learn that God answers prayer, but Peter's healed mother-in-law shows us the proper response to answered prayer. And so we will look... At four points from this passage, we'll look first at intercession, second, answer, third, service, and then fourth, silence. So intercession, answer, service, and silence. So let's look first at intercession. So verse 30 tells us, Simon's mother-in-law was in bed with a fever, and they told Jesus about her. The first thing we learn from this passage is the importance of intercessory prayer. The disciples come to Jesus and tell him that Peter's mother-in-law is sick with a fever. Luke, the physician, calls it in his account a high fever, or literally in the Greek, a great fever, indicating that this fever was much more menacing and threatening than your average low-grade fever. The disciples had just come from the synagogue where they witnessed Jesus drive out an evil spirit out of a man. We heard Reverend Budding preach about this last Sunday. And so these disciples join the crowd in marveling, what is this? A new teaching and with authority. He even gives orders to evil spirits and they obey him. So they go from there to the home of Peter. Disciples do not just come to Jesus just to inform him of the problem of Peter's sick mother-in-law. Rather, they are asking him to solve the problem. They ask Jesus to do what they cannot do because they know that he is able. They have seen him work miracles. The apostles interceding for Peter's mother-in-law is especially made more explicit in the Luke account. So in Luke four thirty-eight, it says, Now Simon's mother-in-law was suffering from a high fever then it says and they asked Jesus to help her this is called intercessory prayer to go to God and intercede in prayer in behalf of another now the bible speaks of various intercessors first we read about Jesus Christ our great high priest he's our great intercessor so we see this in hebrews 7:25 it says, therefore, he is able to save completely those who come to God through him because he always lives to intercede for them. We also read about the Holy Spirit who intercedes for us. So Romans 8, starting with verse 26, says, In the same way, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. We do not know what to pray for, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us With groans that words cannot express. And he who searches our hearts knows the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints in accordance with God's will. See, the Holy Spirit intercedes for us because he has perfect knowledge, first of all, of God's will, but he also has perfect knowledge of what we need. See, we think we know what we need, but the Holy Spirit knows what we need, and so he intercedes in our behalf but we too as believers are called to intercede for others you see there's many places in the scriptures but I'll look at a couple of examples James 5:16 James says therefore confess your sins to each other and pray for each other so that you may be healed See, you see, the healing is dependent upon this. Pray for each other so that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous man is powerful and effective. See, our gracious God hears the prayers of his people in behalf of the body of Christ. The Father listens to the prayers of his children as his children pray for their brothers and sisters. In Ephesians 6, 18, the Apostle Paul says... And pray in the Spirit on all occasions with all kinds of prayers and requests. With this in mind, be alert. And here it is. Always keep on praying for all the saints. See, that's intercessory prayer. There should be a consistency and persistence in our interceding in behalf of our fellow believers. But the truth is, to intercede for others first requires that I have an interest beyond myself. I must have a personal interest in others. So Philippians 2.4, Paul says, Each of you should look not only to your own interests, but also to the interests of others. You see, the truth is, self-centered people will not intercede for others. They suffer from spiritual myopia which is nearsightedness. They are keenly aware of their own needs and desires, but they simply cannot see beyond that. They are totally ignorant of the needs and desires of others, and we know that we pray according to need. So the one who is blissfully unaware of the needs of others around them will never pray for those people. Paul commends Timothy... ...his companion and fellow worker for not being like this, for not being self-centered. In Philippians 2, starting with verse 20, he says, "...I have no one else like him," which tells you it's rare. "...I have no one else like him who takes a genuine interest in your welfare. For everyone looks out for his own interests, not for those of Jesus Christ." Now, if you listen to that, he looks out for his own interests, not in those of Jesus Christ... What that's saying is the one not interested in others is simply not interested in what Christ is interested in. And so to pray for others, you have to first love them. Peter and the other disciples love Peter's mother-in-law. This is sympathetic love. They feel along with her pain. So they go to Jesus and they intercede for her. And one who is truly born of God, truly born again, will have an interest in others. After all, the first fruit of the Spirit is what? Love. See, if the Holy Spirit is in you, you will love. So the regenerate man who has this Spirit dwelling in him loves others and so regularly prays for them. Those who are truly born of God will have a burden for others. When one member of the body of Christ suffers, every other member suffers. We remember Epaphras in Colossians 4.12. He's a model of a faithful and earnest intercessor. We're told that he was always wrestling in prayer for the Colossians. He says, Epaphras is always wrestling in prayer for you that you may stand firm in all the will of God, mature and fully assured. You see, it's one thing to be in earnest praying for your own needs, but Epaphras was always wrestling in prayer, not for himself, but for others, for the Colossian church. The Bible says that we are to intercede for all sorts of people. 1 Timothy 2.1 says, I urge then, first of all, that request, prayers, intercession, and thanksgiving be made for everyone. We should, first of all, pray for our fellow believers. We should pray that they would grow in Christ and persevere in faith. We can pray that they would be filled with the Holy Spirit and shine as lights and be effective workers in God's harvest field. We can also pray for their practical needs. We can pray for their good health. We can pray for them to do well on a perhaps a difficult midterm they face. We could pray for them to find a godly spouse. We can pray for grace to safely deliver a healthy child. We can pray for safety for our law enforcement officers and firefighters here at home, or for our soldiers abroad. Or we may have an unemployed brother who we are praying would get a job that would provide daily bread. So this is all intercessory prayer that we should be praying, and praying earnestly, wrestling in prayer for our brothers and sisters. We also pray for fellow believers who are in the midst of severe trials, people with serious health problems, those suffering loss of loved ones or the, or the potential loss of loved ones, or, of course, those who themselves are facing death. We pray both for those we know by name and for believers around the world that we do not even know personally. We pray that our persecuted brethren throughout the world would either be delivered or have the strength to endure. And we intercede for even unbelievers, whether it be family, friends, co-workers, neighbors, classmates. We pray for those who do not know Christ. We pray earnestly for their genuine salvation, not just that they start coming to church more or just that they read a book we give them but for their genuine salvation they'd be born of God we pray because salvation belongs to the Lord he only can raise the dead to life and bring a soul to true repentance and saving faith see we cannot raise them And they certainly cannot raise themselves. So we go to our God, our mighty God. He's mighty to save. So we go to him and pray for their salvation. And we also know that we are, have been, and will be helped by others who are praying for us. That's one of the great blessings in being a part of a covenant community. We have brothers and sisters who go to our God in prayer for us. Therefore, we should seek the prayers of God's people. The Apostle Paul repeatedly asked for prayer from others. So one example of many is Ephesians 6, starting with verse 19. Paul says, pray also for me. He's asking the Ephesian church, pray for me. That whenever I open my mouth, words may be given me so that I will fearlessly make known the mystery of the gospel for which I'm an ambassador in chains Pray that I may declare it fearlessly as I should. You see it many other times, but I'll give you a few examples to write down. Colossians 4.3, 1 Thessalonians 5.25, 2 Thessalonians 3.1. All examples where you see the Apostle Paul asking the church to pray for him. And if the Apostle Paul needed the prayers of others, surely so do we. Finally, we pray for others for their good, but the truth is that we ourselves also benefit from praying for others. We will be blessed by God when we take an interest in others because that's what he's interested in. He's interested in something beyond you, right? So Samuel Rutherford, the great uh, Puritan that we've been hearing about from our pastor recently. He said this about interceding for others and himself receiving blessing. He says, I seldom made an errand to God for another, but I got something for myself. See, he's going to God for an errand for another, and yet he's getting something for himself because God's blessing him as he's interceding for others. So, you know, the hymn says, Take it to the Lord in prayer. But let's not just take our needs to the Lord in prayer. But take to the Lord in prayer the needs of others, and always keep on praying for all the saints and for everyone. So the second point is the answer. You see in verse 31, So he went to her, Jesus went to Peter's mother-in-law, took her hand and helped her up. The fever left her. We serve a mighty and gracious God who hears and answers the prayers of God's holy people. The great pastor C. H. Spurgeon said it this way: He said, If there be anything under heaven that I'm as sure as as I am of the demonstrations of mathematics, it is the fact that God answers prayer. He has proved this to us over and over, personally and corporately. He does not always answer in the way and time that we want or expect, but he very often answers in a way that makes it unmistakable that the answer is from him. Knowing that God answers prayer ought to spur us on to pray, to pray more, to pray more earnestly, and to persevere in praying more earnestly. We can pray for someone all we want, but the real blessing, don't forget is not the prayer, but it is the answer to the prayer. Yes, it is a blessing to have people pray for you, but the much greater blessing is that the one to whom they pray answers. Put another way, the miracle here is not that the disciples asked Jesus to heal Peter's mother-in-law. The miracle is that Jesus answered their prayer and healed her. In fact, the way this healing is described emphasizes the initiative of Jesus. The text says, he went to her. Jesus is the moving force here. He comes to her. She does not come to him. This is a picture of the divine initiative of salvation. We are lost and helpless, dead in our transgressions and sins. Then by his grace, God comes to us. We do not come to him. There's many Uh, Parts in the scripture, especially many psalms that that show this divine initiative. I'll give you one example in Psalm 98 verse one says, sing to the Lord a new song, for he has done marvelous things. His right hand and his holy arm have worked salvation for him. See, our salvation is all about the wonderful things he has done for us by his right hand and his holy arm. We do not come to him first because we cannot come to him on our own. God must work in us in order for us to have an interest in coming to Christ. This point is made clear by Jesus himself in John 6, verse 65. The Lord Jesus says, this is why I told you that no one, no one can come to me Unless the Father has enabled him. We are not able. We are dead in our transgressions and sins. Only when the Father enables us by the Spirit will we come to Christ. Or 1 John 4.19 says we love because what? He first loved us. See, His divine initiative in our salvation. Ours is a responsive love for the love that he has shown us. The text goes on to say that Jesus took her hand and helped her up. We see this throughout the Gospels. We see how Jesus reaches out and touches the sick. He is not standoffish. He does not help people and hold them at arm's length. And certainly if Jesus does not hold people at arm's length, then neither should we. The picture of Jesus helping Peter's mother-in-law is a reflection of how God helps his people. The Scriptures make clear that God is our helper. Deuteronomy thirty-three twenty-nine says, He is your shield and helper and your glorious sword. Or Psalm 118, verse 7, The Lord is with me. He is my helper. I will look in triumph on my enemies. We pray to God because we know that he hears us and he will help us in our times of need. If he is not a God who helps, then there simply is no reason to pray to him. See, people talk a lot about the value of prayer just in a kind of psychological way. And and even if there's no God, it's just good for your your mindset. If you pray, it's all false. If there is no God who answers your prayer, it's a waste of time for you to pray. But our God hears our prayers. So we pray to him. Psalm 18, starting with verse 6, says, In my distress I called to the Lord... I cried to my God for help from his temple. He heard my voice. My cry came before him into his ears. Then it says in verse 16 of Psalm 18, He reached down from on high and took hold of me. He drew me out of deep waters. See, our God answers prayer. Jesus is particularly helping Peter's mother-in-law by healing her of her fever. In this, we are reminded of God's grace and help, especially in answering our many prayers for healing throughout our life. Think about how many times God has healed us. Psalm 30, verse 2 says, O Lord my God, I called to you for help, and you healed me. And you remember Psalm 103, verse 2, which says, Praise the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all his benefits, who forgives all your sins and heals all your diseases. See, we tend to fixate on our maladies. In fact, we sometimes make a list of them so we can go and share this blessing with others and tell us about all our problems. And we quickly forget our many blessings. And when we do this, we we do a great affront to God. We should never forget the myriad of healing mercies that we have experienced. Everyone here has been sick before, and everybody here has been healed. Not only has he healed us from past sicknesses, but have you ever thought about how he has kept you from many diseases? See, Exodus fifteen twenty six says, If you listen carefully to the voice of the Lord your God and do what is right in his eyes, if you pay attention to his commands and keep all his decrees, says, I will not bring on you any of the diseases I brought on the Egyptians, for I am the Lord who heals you. See, there's diseases that he has kept us from. At the risk of pointing out the obvious, Jesus' power to heal is a clear indication of his divinity. So you follow the logic. The first proposition is God is the one who heals. Second, Jesus heals. Therefore, Jesus is God. A medical doctor, no matter what he says, cannot heal. At best, he can be an instrument that God uses to help bring about a natural healing. But if God has determined someone to have a disease, no doctor, no matter how skilled he may be, no doctor can change what God has determined. Every honest, humble doctor, of which we have many here, will admit that he himself or she herself lacks the ability to heal because he is not God. But what about others in the Bible who heal? Didn't Moses heal Miriam of leprosy? Didn't the disciples of Jesus heal the sick? No, it was God who brought about these healings through the intercessory prayers of these saints. Let's look at one example of God's doing this. We see God raising to life the Shunammite woman's dead son through the prophet Elisha. So in 2 Kings 4, starting with verse 32, we read, When Elisha reached the house... There was the boy lying dead on his couch. He went in, shut the door on the two of them, and it doesn't say, and then he raised the boy to life. It says, and he prayed to the Lord. And then the Lord brought the dead child back to life. Surely Elisha would have been horrified to hear someone declare that Elisha raised the Shunammite son from the dead. No, Elisha prayed and God raised but Jesus does not pray for God to heal Peter's mother-in-law. No, he does so himself. Jesus touches Peter's mother-in-law with his own divine hand. Jesus, being God in human flesh, has power to remove the woman's fever. And not only is he able, but he is willing. Praise the Lord. But when we approach God, in prayer, we must do so with the faith that he hears and answers our prayers. He does not answer the prayers of the skeptic doubter who pretends to believe in him. Jesus said in Matthew twenty-one, twenty-two, If you believe, you will receive whatever you ask for in prayer. Or Luke 8, verse 50, Jesus says to Jairus, Don't be afraid, just believe, and she will be healed. So the application of this point is, do not believe in the power of prayer, right? I don't believe in the power of prayer. I believe in the power of the gracious God who hears and answers our prayer. Pray with an expectation to see God glorify himself through answering your prayer. So the third point is service. Verse 31 says, The fever left her, and what she do? She began to wait on them. This here is the meat of what we want to say from this text. This is where, we, where Peter's mother-in-law demonstrates for us the title of the sermon, the proper response to answered prayer. We can learn a lot from the fact that once Peter's mother-in-law was healed, the first thing she did says she began to wait on them pastor once preached a sermon series on Romans 16 entitled, Saved to Serve. That's the description of the Christian life. We are saved to serve. And that is what we see here in Peter's mother-in-law. Having been rescued by Christ from her disease, she sees it now as her duty to serve her healer, her redeemer, her savior. One commentator put it this way, He said she used her renewed health for renewed service. The Christian life is a thanksgiving offering. We serve and obey him out of love for Christ and thankfulness for what he has done for us. We are ever thankful because when we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. Even though we were sinners and enemies, Christ died for us. We no longer live for ourselves. We now live for him who died for us and was raised again. We are to serve Christ, thankfully, because it is by grace we have been saved through faith. And this is not of ourselves. It is the gift of God, something we have freely received, not meritoriously achieved. Perhaps some encouraged Peter's healed mother-in-law to lay low for a while and recover. She'd just been sick with this high fever. But the love of Christ compels her to serve. She's overwhelmed by thankfulness and cannot help but serve and do good works. As we have heard in this church many times, because it's it's the word of the Lord from the Bible. But it bears repeating, My good works do not result in my salvation, but my salvation necessarily results in my good works. We are not saved because we serve, but we serve because we are saved. A faith without good works, a faith without obedience is not saving faith. A faith without deeds is dead. Too often, instead of serving, we take on a rancid, take care of me mentality. We look to be served rather than to serve. We look for what we can get rather than what we can give. We need, we need to not be like that guy at work who is always looking to use others for his advancement, never looking for how he can be helpful to advance others. We're not going to be like that child who loves the concept of sharing, but whose view of sharing is to always be the one borrowing but never lending. But if we are unwilling servants, it is primarily because God has not changed our hearts. Take that to the bank. If we are not service-oriented, if we're not interested in serving others, we're not born of God. We have not yet experienced what Peter's mother-in-law experienced. We have not been saved. Our soul has not yet been healed. The man who has been truly born again has a heart that has been set free to serve Christ and his people. Paul counted it to be a mighty privilege to be a servant of God. Paul gloried in being called a slave of Christ. In fact, he introduced himself as a slave of Christ, doulos to Christu, in the first verse of Romans and Philippians and Titus. That's what he calls himself. That's my title. I'm a slave of Christ. Notice that Peter's mother-in-law not only serves Christ, who healed her, but she also serves the other disciples. Did you notice that? The text does not say she waited on him, The text says she waited on them. This is because Christ is united with his people. In order to serve him, you must also serve his people. The two go together. They are vitally linked. The church is the body of Christ. He is the head. If I'm going to serve the head, I'm going to serve the body. The disciples were willing to serve Christ... But very often in their pride, they often refuse to humble themselves and serve one another. They are more interested in who is the greatest among them. And so in John 13, Jesus washed his disciples' feet for the expressed purpose of setting an example of what we should do regularly for one another. You see, Christ was the model of service. That's why in Matthew 10, 45 It says for even the son of man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. If Christ served us, how much more ought we who are saved by him, serve him and serve one another. And this is certainly what we have done in this church, in this covenant community for over 45 years. We manifest our love for Christ and our thankfulness for our salvation by pouring out our lives in loving service for one another. And that's true. That's an undeniable testimony of this church. When someone is sick in our midst, they're taken care of. There's service done around this church all the time. Likewise, the apostle Paul exhorted the saved believers to serve. See, Galatians 5.13, Paul says, You, my brothers, were called to be free. But do not use your freedom to indulge this sinful nature. See, uh, freedom is not freedom to sin. What's freedom for? He says, rather use that freedom to serve one another in love. You serve freely one another. It takes humility to serve others. I only serve others when I put others before me. As Paul says in Philippians 2.3, Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility consider others better than yourselves. That's when you'll serve others, when you consider others better than yourself. And we should especially keep this truth in mind when God heals us physically. When we are sick and we're asking God to heal us, we should be prepared to answer his probing question to us. This is the question he has for us. Why should I give you health? What will you use your health for? Why does God give us strength and health? So that we may serve him. Is that really what you are using your health and life for? That is why you are given life and health. So don't waste your life and health by serving yourself. Serve the one who gave you your health and life And live for the one who died for you and was raised again. The final point we'll see is silence. This is really from verses 32 through 34. But that last verse, verse 34, says, Jesus also drove out many demons, but he would not let the demons speak because they knew who he was. Jesus drove out many evil spirits, but he refused to allow them to reveal who he was. The parallel Luke account ...tells us more specifically what these demons were saying. So in Luke 4, verse 41, this is the, the parallel account. It says, moreover, demons came out of many people. And what were the demons saying? They were shouting, you are the son of God. But he rebuked them and would not allow them to speak... ...because they knew he was the Christ. This demonstrates that the demons know exactly who Jesus is. They know that he's the Messiah... And they know he's the eternal, be, only begotten Son of God. Reverend Budding pointed this out last Sunday morning from the text Mark 1, verse 24. When he drove out the evil spirit, the evil spirit said, What do you want with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. Interestingly, in Mark, the most orthodox statements about the identity of Jesus are often spoken by Demons. You'll see it again in Mark 3 11 says whenever the evil spirits saw him they fell down before him and cried out you are the son of God or Mark 5 7 the demon possessed man shouted at the top of his voice what do you want with me Jesus son of the most high God ironically Jesus own disciples often demonstrated inferior knowledge. In fact, in Mark four forty-one, after Jesus calms the storm, here are his very closest disciples. It says, they were terrified and asked each other, who is this? Even the winds and the waves obey him. See, the demons did not ask, who is this? They knew who this was. So the demons knew who he was. They had no doubts about it. But all that, it's all to point to the insufficiency of having a mere orthodox head knowledge of who Jesus is. This is known as dead orthodoxy or mere mental assent. Yeah, I know certain propositional truths. I, I know that they're true. And so that's faith. And that's not faith. That's right. It's not enough to be able to accurately identify who Jesus is. Even the devil can do that. We know from James 2.19... You believe that there is one God, good, even the demons believe that, and shudder. We must not just know who Jesus is. We must repent of our sins and surrender our whole lives to Jesus Christ. That is the essence of saving faith. The fact that Jesus orders the demons not to speak about who he is also shows that Jesus has complete authority over the devil. Jesus Christ is the sovereign Lord. He is in control of all things, and that all includes even the devil and the demons. They are all under his sovereign rule. The devil and the demons cannot do what God does not allow. They cannot even do one thing that he does not allow. This is why in the first chapter of Job, Satan must seek God's permission before he puts Job to the test. We ought to rejoice that Christ has authority over the devil. There is no equal ultimacy here. There are not two almighty sovereign powers in the universe. No, the devil is certainly powerful, undoubtedly much more powerful than us in ourselves. But filled with the Holy Spirit, we know that greater is he that is in us than he that is in the world. You see, the devil aims to steal, kill, and destroy you. And me But the truth is That we should rejoice in this truth The word of God says No one can snatch us from God's hand Yeah you may want to steal, kill and destroy But you are not able Because God keeps his people Jesus is Lord of all And all includes the demons So when he orders them to be silent They must obey They must depart They must do so quickly and quietly part of the reason why Jesus silences the demons surely was because of their malicious intent. The commentator Sinclair Ferguson says their purpose was to create conflict for Jesus before his time to die had really come. So he exercised his royal power and commanded them to be silent. A more general reason why Jesus orders the demons not to speak is because... Of what we see uh, throughout the Gospels And especially it's a common theme in the book of Mark It's called the Messianic secret The Messianic secret is, is Jesus was uh, not going to make his identity clear Until the proper time So you see this throughout In Mark 7.36 After he heals the deaf and mute man Jesus commands them And not the demons this time Now he's, he's commanding those who witnessed the miracle He commands them not to tell anyone Or Mark 8.30 after Peter makes his great confession of, the Christ, of Jesus as the Messiah, as the Christ, Jesus then warns his disciples not to tell anyone about him. Or Mark 9, verse 9, after Jesus showed his glory to a few disciples on the Mount of Transfiguration, it says, As they were coming down the mountain, Jesus gave them orders not to tell anyone what they had seen until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. It was not yet time to make plain who Christ is Once he is clearly identified as the Messiah That was when he was going to be arrested Tried and put to death But I have good news for us The good news is that the time of the messianic secret Has long since passed See we may like that idea that we should not tell anybody But that's not the word for us today In fact, it ended at the triumphal entry at the beginning of Passion Week, when Jesus revealed himself as the Messiah for all the public to see. We, as God's redeemed people in this church age, are not commanded to be silent. On the contrary, as our pastor preached to us last Sunday night, we are not to be ashamed of acknowledging our Lord before men. So instead, we are commanded to go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. And we are to teach them to obey everything that Christ has commanded us. We do this through sharing and preaching the gospel, which is the power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes. We read not too long ago from First Chronicles 16, starting with verse 8. Says, give thanks to the Lord, call on his name, make known among the nations what he has done, sing to him, sing praise to him, tell of all his wonderful acts. Indeed, God gives us power from on high, and he fills us with the Holy Spirit, so that we can be his witnesses, first in our homes, then at our schools and workplaces, in our neighborhoods and communities, and indeed throughout the whole world. Our Heavenly Father gives the Holy Spirit to who? The privileged, to the the select few. He gives the Holy Spirit to those who ask. So we need to come asking. Ask for the Holy Spirit for yourself. Ask for the Holy Spirit for others. That's a great intercessory prayer. Pray for your brothers and sisters to be filled with the Holy Spirit. Pray for college students who are reaching out to this campus. Fill those college students with the Holy Spirit. And know that God will graciously answer that good prayer. And when we are filled with the Spirit, we will open our mouths and in faith, we will speak this gospel of salvation. We will speak this good news for all people. And we believe that God will hear our prayers and he will add to this church, his church, and he'll add to his church daily, including today. He will add those whom he has chosen from all eternity. He will add those who are even now being saved. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we recognize that you have heard our prayers. Indeed, you have answered by giving above and beyond all we could ask or imagine. You have blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. So in light of these answered prayers, may we live a life of thanksgiving. May we pour out our lives in service of you and in service of your people. And so fill us with the Holy Spirit that we may give thanks to you and make known what you have done for us in Christ. That we may sing praise to your name and tell of all your wonderful acts. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.